you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12, the book of Mark chapter 12, as we continue our series through the book of Mark. I know about you, but I was blown away at how pretty it was outside this morning. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's a great day to gather together with God's people and to gather around uh, His Word together. I'm excited about that. I appreciate uh, Pastor Mark getting us through Mark chapter 11. uh, And uh, he did a lot of great groundwork that helps me as we now move into chapter 12. Let's first go to Lord in prayer. Let's ask for help. Um, Let's ask for guidance for the preacher and for the listener of the Word. Let's pray. Father, again, we return to You. This is an awesome task we call worship. It's not something we can pull off on our own, not by any stretch. It's something given over to us by Your Spirit. And so, Father, we come. We come as Your people. And Lord, I ask that You would use this ancient text, these words, Father, that Your Spirit gave over centuries ago that we are now processing together now. You knew then that You would use it in the life of us, Your people. And so, Father, we pray that You would use it. Lord, I pray that the name of Jesus would be heralded because of our time around Your Word. I pray, Father, that You would remind us that this is only temporary what we're experiencing. There is a grand kingdom that waits. I pray, Father, that You would encourage Your people Be diligent and waiting for the Son to return. I pray, Father, that there is anyone here who is outside of the kingdom of God because they have not chosen to follow Jesus Christ with reckless abandon. I pray that You would be gracious enough to open blind eyes and let them see, trust and believe and change today. Father, I ask for Your help as the preacher. I pray for each hearer of the Word that You, Father, would work in hearts and minds as You see fit. We ask all these things to You, Father, through the name of Jesus, to be applied now by Your Spirit. Amen. Alright, well we're going to try, God willing, to go from Mark 12 and traverse all the way to Mark 13, verse 2 together. God willing, that will happen. Begin begin by telling you a story, a two-sentence story. It was a brisk, cold morning in late January 2009. Barack Obama, along with his wife Michelle, rode in the back of a limousine waving to folks who had gathered there on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. It's my story. So for most of us, we realize these two sentences actually represent a very significant event. We recognize the import of terms such as Washington, D.C., such as Pennsylvania Avenue, such as Barack Obama, such as January 2009. And given that this occurred a few, uh, just a few years ago, we recognize this is the story of the inauguration of President Obama. And that is significant to us For a lot of reasons. One, because we believe that the United States 
is the most elite nation in the world because we believe that the U.S. Constitution was framed in such a way that it gave all the powers of one branch under one person. Because we realize that only 44 men in history have ever held that office. But furthermore, it's significant because we recognize the import that Barack Obama was the first African American to ever hold that office. Because we realize that less than 50 years prior to that, African Americans in this country did not have the opportunity to vote for the president, more or less to become a president. Because we realize that in a not-so-distant part past in our nation, African Americans were treated as property, not persons. Those two sentences are weighty. I say that is only an example to make this point. Understanding the context of a story helps you grasp the weight of a story. The more you understand the history, in the scope, in the relevant terms, the more you appreciate the importance of a story. Pastor Mark marched us through Mark 11 last week. He marched us through this incredible moment in human history when Jesus of Nazareth makes His way into Jerusalem, and in particular, into the temple. We call that portion the triumphal entry, which was covered in Mark 11. And Pastor Mark effectively uh, covered for us the significant events and the, the context around those last week. And so that's actually freed me up to do something a little bit different. I want to do as a run-up to chapter 12 a four-minute overview of the entire Old Testament. Um, that's not going to be great, but it is going to be four minutes. All right, so here we go. This is a run-up to Mark 12. As I honestly believe, you could argue that all the Old Testament is running you up to these few chapters in uh, the book of Mark, and, and obviously there are parallels in the other Gospels. So how, here we go. In the inaugural book of the Bible, Genesis, we see man and God living together. And they're living together how? Well, they're living together in perfect harmony. You might call this state in the Garden of Eden temple. This is where man dwelt in the house of God and did so with peace. Now this is huge to understanding human flourishing. Why do I say that? I say that because you and I were made to live in peace, in the presence, and under the authority of God. We will thrive there. Our bodies, our souls, our minds were created to flourish under the peace, presence, and protection of God. And that was Eden. And that temple was ruined because of sin. The next four books of the Bible, we are told of the story of God selecting a people for Himself. We are told of the story of God selecting a people and making them special. Why are they special? Not because of anything about them. They are special because God has decided to share His presence with them. If God is going to share His presence with them, 
This is a big deal because they are an unholy people. This isn't like Eden. These are unholy people and this is going to be very costly. So we get all these details in these first uh, five books of the Bible, in particular those uh, uh, two through five, we get the sacrificial system. We get details about civil order. We get all the details about the great pains that the people must go through to be a distinct and a different people. So if you're walking through the Bible through a year plan, this is the point where you get to the point where you go, what is going on? I've just stepped off into crazy land, right? Like I've never read the word discharge this many times. How is this in the Bible? Well, this is that. This is why it's there. Because God is dwelling with unholy people, it is not easy, it is difficult, and it is complicated. Well, before God can even get them to a place where they are settled, before He can get them to a place where a temple is built, they rebel and destroy. And as such, instead of God dwelling in a building, He dwells in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is like a temple RV, I think. Um, so you, you can picture... Um, uh, Moses and Aaron telling the Girgashites, we're taking that with us when we leave. But anyway, alright. It's a place, it is the tabernacle is a place where God can come temple with His people. But as they move, so also it will move. While the Garden of Eden was ruined because of man's sin, the tabernacle was diminished because of man's sin. Finally, Around the year 1000 B.C., under the leadership of a guy by the name of Solomon, King Solomon, finally, we have the people of God in their land. We have the temple built. This is the highlight of the Old Testament. This is the moment. We have the presence of God with the people of God. And yet again, like Eden was ruined because of man's sin, the temple was destroyed because of man's sin. The people were kicked out of their land, taken exile, and the temple was sacked. This represents the most depressing moment in the Old Testament, second only to the original fall. Later, the people returned to the land, and there they would build the second temple. But it was always a diminished temple. It was always diminished compared to the original temple. It was diminished because of their sin. And rest assured, it's not a coincidence, right around the time of Jesus' birth, the temple would be rebuilt in a less diminished state under the, guy, guy, under the leadership of a guy by the name of Herod. And so here we have this moment in human history when Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, God in flesh, God dwelt among us, has walked into the temple. Every inch of text we will cover this morning is in the temple. It is incredibly significant to understand that. Here we have the Son of God, the temple of God. And the best that they had to offer in the building of the temple, speaking to us. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. May God grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. 
And he began to speak to them in parables. Now, before we even go any further, you know what's coming. Because you know in Mark chapter 4, Jesus said, I will speak in parables. Why? I'll speak in parables to judge. And when I speak in parables, I'll be speaking to the outsiders. So nothing even has to go further out of his mouth than the fact that he's going to use a parable and you know that judgment's coming, right? That's exactly right. So, judgment's coming. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. And he dug a pit for the wine press. And he built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and send them away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head. And they treated him shamefully. Verse 5, and he sent another one. And him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. He had still one... He, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So bear in mind, right before this teaching of Jesus there in the temple, he had just been his authority had just been questioned by the scribes. This follows that immediately. So so what's the story? Well, you got a farmer. The farmer goes through great cost to plant a vineyard. And in the vineyard, he puts a watchtower. And he puts a fence around the vineyard to protect it. The watchtower would be security and prominence. And then he gives them a wine press where they can make wine. He hires tenant farmers. This was something very normal in their day. They all understood exactly what he's talking about. He gives them tenant farmers to take care of it. And then finally, the time comes when he knows that Fruit should be there. So he sends an employee to go gather the fruit. What happens? Well, instead of them receiving them with open arms, they beat them and send them away up uh, empty-handed. So then he sends another. They beat him. He sends another and another and another and another. And some they beat and some they kill. Finally, the man exasperated sends his son. The tenants say, well, hey, If we kill the son, surely the vineyard will be ours. So they kill the son. And Jesus looks. He's standing in the temple. He looks at all of them. And he says, what do you think this man's going to do? I'll tell you what he's going to do. He's going to come destroy every one of those tenants. And he's going to give the vineyard to somebody else. It's judgment. I think the outworking of this story is, is what the rest of chapter 12 is about. When God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, He dug a hole and He put a seed in it that was Him planting the seed for His kingdom. 
And for that vineyard, for that kingdom, He gave the law and He gave the prophets to declare His will and His ways to His people so they would know the boundaries of the kingdom. And then He dug a wine press by giving them a temple. He built a tower which we might call the Davidic kingdom. And yet the story of the Old Testament is the story of God coming to His people time after time, looking for fruit. And prophet after prophet, what happens? Some they killed, some they beat and sent away empty-handed. And so, here you have God's Son, Jesus. Just picture this. He's standing in the temple. You might say He's standing in the winepress of the vineyard, telling them what's about to take place in just a few hours. They will kill the vineyard owner's son. And then He quotes for them Psalm 118. A very familiar psalm, written about 500 years earlier. It is about when the Messiah comes. Verse 10. Have you not read this Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was Yahweh's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. At each step throughout the Passion Week, Jesus is careful that we understand not one thing happens outside of the perfect plan of God that was planned centuries prior. Jesus tells them that they will reject them. And in so doing, they will lay the first stone of the new kingdom. The cornerstone of the new heavens and the new earth is the moment that the Father crushed His only Son for our sin. Look straight at them. Blind they did not see. Deaf they did not hear. Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest Him but feared the people, for they perceived that He had told this parable against them. That they were right about. So they left Him and went away. Alright, point two. Plotting to kill the owner's son. A parable of judgment, point one. Point two, plotting to kill the owner's son. So verse 13, we're going to read this section and there's probably a part of you that goes, this seems a bit disconnected. If it does at first, I hope it won't when we finish. Verse 13, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So we know what their point is. They're trying to trap him, right? And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion." For you are not swayed by appearance, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarii and let me look at it. Now there's a funny moment here. These are people acting like they don't want Caesar's money. The only way that 
Jesus knows exactly what it looks like, but he asked them to produce it. In other words, I'm the one, you're the one carrying the money, not me. But anyway, that's beside the point. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. They think, oh, we got him now. Jesus turns and he says, well, then render to Caesar's things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. (laughs) What is going on? Well, rest assured, this is not an academic discussion on the merits of taxes. This is the leaders acting exactly as Jesus just predicted they would act. They are seeking to kill the vineyard owner's son. The Jewish leaders could not just take Jesus out back and kill him. They did not have the authority for capital punishment. They needed the Romans to do that. So they were hoping that Jesus would speak against Rome in such a way that it would get him killed. This is amazing. Jesus tells a story about the tenants trying to kill the owner's son. Very next passage, the tenants are trying to kill the owner's son. Jesus doesn't take the bait. Why doesn't he take the bait? It's very helpful that he didn't take the bait. Because he tells them, just pay Caesar's what is Caesar's. There's a ton to be gained and gleaned from that. I've got to be careful because that's really not the major thrust of the passage. But we'll side note for just a second because Tim needs a sermon probably more than any other person in this room. For all our hand-wringing about wasteful or incompetent governments, may we be reminded what the Lord said about the government that just hours later would strip him naked and nail him to a cross? What did he say? Give Caesar what is Caesar's. Just pay the man his money. Folks, the church of Christ, the Christian church, began under a man named Nero. Nero impaled our brothers and sisters on stakes and burnt them as candles so that he could see as he walked in his garden at night. That we can wring our hands, that we can be upset, is evidence that we enjoy a freedom that is unheralded in human history. Just give the man his money. Alright, back on track. That's not the major thrust of the passage, but that is a helpful point of Christian doctrine. Now, back on. So, on road, I need to continue preaching that sermon much to myself. There's a lot of things there I want to say, but I'm not going to say because I'm a Baptist, and we Baptists believe in the separation of church and state because we fought very hard for it. Thank you very much. Alright, so, this is very hard, but we're moving on. Alright, so, uh, we've just seen that as Jesus predicted... The tenants rose up and they tried to kill the vineyard owner's son. That is, the leaders are literally loading the gun, not literally, figuratively loading the gun and aiming it at Jesus. That's what's going on there. Now verse 18. This is point three. Two types of fence keepers. Two types of fence keepers. Verse 18. Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. 
I read that poorly. Start over. Verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Something called love at marriage this is in the Old Testament. Uh, so yeah, all this so far, legit. 20. There are seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. Verse 22. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So the Sadducees uh, are, are a group of leaders in Jewish life. Along with not believing in the idea of resurrection, they also denied that there was any uh, scripture outside the first five books of the Bible. They know that Jesus believes in the resurrection. So they intend to trap him. This is like a sort of gotcha question for them. You can imagine they sit around thinking of this one all the time. Oh, we'll ask him, we'll catch him, he can't answer, ha ha ha. So that's their point. Well, sadly, if the law of God was the fence for the kingdom, these folks posing the question, they're the fence keepers. Far from tending the fence, perverse as it is, they're actually trying to use the fence to keep the sun from the vineyard. It's incredibly perverse, Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? You, neither, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Now remember, they only believe in the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus takes them to one of the first five books of the Bible. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus harshly condemns them for blatant ignorance. Ignorance, number one. Well, first of all, they think that when Jesus is talking about a resurrection, He's talking about just an extended version of this present life. They're dead wrong. I like how one commentator put it. He put it like this. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. (laughs) Second, if they want to hold the first five books of the Bible, that's fine. Jesus says, but I'm pretty sure God said to Moses... 500 years after the death of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, the only way that he can say that is if there is something such as the resurrection. Why? Because he's saying, I am not the God that was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Short of a resurrection, that is impossible. Summary. You are poor teachers of the law. You are inadequate fence keepers. Now, a helpful fence keeper. Verse 28, just complete contrast. And one of the scribes came up and he heard them disputing with one another. 
And seeing that he, that's Jesus, answered them well, he said, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that He is one and there is none beside Him. To love Him with all our heart, with all our understanding, with all our strength, and to love one's neighbor as Himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that, He answered wisely. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, nobody dared ask Him any more questions. This is intended as a stark contrast to the gotcha question of the Sadducees. Maybe a way to explain it is imagine this. So imagine that Jesus is out in the vineyard and the Sadducees just took him out to a remote part of the vineyard and they want to ask him about one detail on a fence post. Is it really necessary or not? Do we really have to use this or not? As that discussion happens, you get another fence keeper who dearly loves the vineyard, who overhears it. And realizes Jesus knows what he's talking about. He realizes he's the son. And he asks him, what part of, of all of this fence is most crucial for the vineyard? And Jesus doesn't respond by saying, well, in section A, in corridor the northern corridor, section 44, nothing like that, does he? Jesus says, you know, the most important part of this fence is to know that the vineyard owner is the best there is. And this vineyard is worth everything you can imagine. Love the owner and love the vineyard. And this fence keeper, who dearly loves it, looks at him and says, you know, you're right. There's not one detail of this fence that matters any more than the fact we have the best vineyard owner there is. Let's love him and let's love his vineyard. A complete contrast. Point four the son is the son. The little s son is the son. The vineyard owner build a watchtower for the vineyard, this would provide prominence and security. Very similarly, the Davidic kingdom, the monarchy, also provided prominence while it lasted in security for the people of God. Listen to how Jesus teaches the people. Verse 35, Jesus taught him in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So now Jesus is posing the questions. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, by the way, if you're curious, this puts Jesus on record in his belief of divine inspiration given over by the Spirit so that all the the Bible is God-breathed. But anyway, that's an argument for another day. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself, calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. It's a brilliant argument. It's brilliant. 
They believed the Messiah would come through the line of David. But in Psalm 110, David himself writes, The Lord, that's Yahweh, said to my Lord, that's Adonai, You sit at my right hand. Or God says to the Messiah, Sit at my right hand. If the Messiah is merely just a son of David, Jesus argues, if he's just a son of David, the coming Messiah, why is David calling him Lord? Unless he is the Son of God and also the Son of David. But that would take God coming in human flesh. Jesus is in the temple making this argument. It's amazing. It's an amazing moment. Point five. There are two ways to bank on the kingdom. Jesus returns to His earlier judgment and He brings this circle full, brings the story full circle. Verse 38. And in His teaching, He said, Beware the scribes. Walk who like to walk around in long robes and greetings in the marketplaces, have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and feast, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. Beware the scribes. They don't care about the vineyard owner and certainly not about the vineyard owner's son. All they want to do is they want to get fat off the grapes of the vineyard. They like their own little kingdom. What they don't realize is they may be enjoying their grapes now. They may enjoy their prestige now, but they are enjoying their best life now. There is no greater judgment in the Bible than for God to tell a person, you will enjoy your best life now. Now you're going to get the complete antithesis. That's one way to bank on the kingdom. Now, look and see another way to bank on the kingdom. It's put here is a stark contrast. Verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people, they put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. He calls disciples to him and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. Jesus watches is this woman gave almost nothing and gave all that she had. And he tells his disciples she has outgiven everyone else. (laughs) Completely opposite the scribes who use the vineyard for their enjoyment. This woman is taking all that she has and giving it to the vineyard in hopes that it will prosper. She's banking her hopes on the vineyard. Jesus is amazed by this love and this trust. One of the saddest things about the American church is how much we have and how little we give. American Christians should be giving 
tenfold what we are giving. Jesus condemns the Pharisees for giving out of their abundance, but realize that condemnation doesn't even register for most American Christians because most of us aren't giving at all, more or less, out of our abundance. Let me be clear. If every church member would even be willing to give out of their abundance, there would never be financial worries. But rest assured, everybody gets a little nervous when a preacher talks about money. God doesn't need your money. I know that because the very next verse. I love this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones. What wonderful buildings. So they're walking out of the temple. This is Herod's temple. It's the one Herod rebuilt out of no love whatsoever for God, out of complete love for Herod and desire for political um, calculation. One of the disciples looks at it and says, this is beautiful. It is gorgeous. You would think, given how prominent the temple is, Jesus would be like, yes, it is. This is incredible. Verse 2. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? These will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I'm taking this place down. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Just think about what just happened. Immediately, after commending a widow for giving everything she had to the temple, Jesus turns around and says, this place is coming down. Why? Because the son is coming to rebuild the vineyard. This is so helpful. He commends the heart represented by the woman who gave all that she had and moments later condemns the very object to which she was giving it. Why is this helpful? Because it frees me to say without a doubt in my mind, God does not need our money. Not a dime and not a cent. And, brothers and sisters, if we are citizens of the kingdom of God, we had better give generously to the kingdom. Failing to do so is dangerous living. While commending the the widow's sweet faith, Jesus warns the Father is going to judge the institution that was the temple. What do you do with all this? Well, the final section here I have for us, it's only about 25 pages. I'm just playing. We're getting there. How do you live the virtuous vineyard life while awaiting the Son's return? That's the question I was left with. How do I live? How do you live the virtuous vineyard's life while awaiting the Son's return? Well, let's go back to that picture. Picture with me. We started with story time, we're ending with story time. Picture with me a big city in which resides a small vineyard. And there you got a vineyard owner who has built the city or built the vineyard and he's left, and he's left tenant farmers to take care of it. The workers in the vineyard claim that this vineyard will one day be the biggest enterprise in the world, and they claim that their vineyard owner is the most powerful person in the world. You gotta imagine that those outside of the vineyard look down at the vineyard with confusion, probably at times derision. Yet day after day, 
the work on the vineyard continues. Then imagine that one day news that the son is coming to return, the vineyard owner's son is coming to return, comes. How might folks respond? Let me give you some examples. Couldn't you imagine that there would be some leaders who are a bit disappointed in the news? I mean, while the vineyard may be small, they do hold prominent roles in it. Can't you imagine that some of them would be a bit nervous that their role, their position, will no longer be necessary? Listen, as a church leader, I can certainly relate. Let me tell you, a lot of church leaders don't want to admit it. But there's almost no church too small, no role too small, where you cannot be, be tempted to lose sight of the big picture. Sadly, the Lord Jesus might still be unwelcomed among the faithful if His return brings with it the end of small kings and their small kingdoms. Could we imagine some workers who've grown so accustomed, so comfortable with their vineyard life that they, they find news of the son's return is a bit unwelcome news. I mean, you could hear them saying, I just got my vineyard house paid off. We got our kids shipped off to Vineyard U. Pretty soon, I, I might be heading to Vineyard Villas, 24-hour bingo, karaoke. I, I'm just beginning to enjoy the vineyard life. Or... You know, wait, 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 wait. I'm just graduating, getting my first job. I'm not, not even married. Give me a few more years of the vineyard life, and, and then I would be a little bit more ready. Surely, we can imagine some lazy vineyard hands, never lifted a finger for the kingdom, shown only flaky commitment to the vineyard. You almost hear them saying, well, it's about time the sun came, and I sure hope he brings some raises when he gets here. And I sure hope he finally judges all the scoundrels outside the vineyard. I'm tired of them making fun of us. You can imagine some of the outsiders. So the son of the farmer coming to take back his little pathetic farm. Finally the folks of the vineyard will realize how ridiculous they are. I'm sure I've overstated those. I intentionally overstated those. But I'm afraid that they do represent real reactions of our hearts. I'm afraid that if we're honest, we may find ourselves as one or many, or find one of those reactions as one or many within us. Are we the leader who's hanging on to our little kingdom? Are we the worker who's grown comfortable and quaint with life here? Are we the lazy church member, church attender, who's contributed almost nothing to the kingdom? Are we the outsider who finds it a bit laughable? Well, what does the ideal reaction look like? Let me paint this for you. I'm guessing from Mark chapter 12, it's going to look something like this. I'm picturing a sweating, unassuming vineyard worker. Hands are dirt soiled, clothes are torn, back is sore, and feet are tired. He's been over pulling weeds and tilling dirt in the same row. He's tilled year after year. He gets news that the son of the vineyard is coming and he takes off running to the gates. Some folks are shocked. They didn't even know he could run. 
the moment he has dreamed about a dozen times a day for decades just came true. And there he stands, unkempt as he can be, waiting and restless. And you can hear him say, Our brother, our Lord has come. The whole earth will now be His vineyard and He will finally rule. He's going to make it all just. He's going to make it all right. He's going to make it all whole. I'm guessing He looks a lot like that woman and her two small coins. Friends, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, He began the process of ushering in the new kingdom. The coming kingdom. The whole earth is going to be His temple. In the new kingdom, a man will dwell in peace and harmony. In the new kingdom, Jesus our King will rule perfectly. We will flourish. How might you situate yourself with that story? Does it matter to you? The new kingdom is going to be as sweet and full of awe as you can ever imagine. When Jesus comes and makes it all right, it will be sweet and awful, full of awe for those in the kingdom. Brother or friend, if you're here and you don't know, Tim, I can't tell you I've shown any commitment to the vineyard. Tim, I, I can't tell you I've shown any love for the vineyard owner or for, the, or for his flock. When he comes, he will judge and he will ruin you. That's what the Bible says. He is going to destroy you. But if you trust in his son, He invites you to come into the vineyard and enjoy life like you have never thought of it. So I beg you, hear the word of the Lord. Trust in this little vineyard called His kingdom. He's coming. It's sooner than we think. And everything will change.